0: Put your glasses up to your life. Books books in a pile in the- hey, hey, welcome, welcome, welcome to the third episode of Two Writers Slinging Gang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm your uncouth host, uh, former Sports Illustrated writer, author of a bunch of books, contributor to Bleacher Report, and uh, in case you're new here, this is a podcast I started just to have a discussion about writing with writers, and um, today is an episode. People always say when they host things like this that, "Oh, I'm really excited for today's episode," but I'm super, truly super psyched for today's episode because I've had, I've actually gotten a lot of comments about this uh, about this podcast so far, and and one of the major ones has been, "Can you please get a beat writer? Can you get a newspaper beat writer?" So I decided to go for maybe the best in the business, uh, definitely one of the one of the best. Uh, Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle, who has covered the Oakland A's since 1999. And Susan has a very long, very storied career in the newspaper business. She's uh, covered the Orlando Magic for the Orlando uh, Sentinel. She's covered the Texas Rangers, briefly, for the Dallas Morning News. Uh, she worked for the Sacramento Bee. She's been around a long time. And what I like about her, more than anything, is she's insanely professional and um, And what that means in many ways is that uh, she's all about business. She's not about the pizzazz. She's not about being famous. Um, She's not about having her, you know, having some tweet sent out a million times. She's truly about being a professional and being really good at her job. Um, And so my admiration for her is is super high. So I'm really happy and excited to have her here today. Susan, can you hear me?
1: I can, yes.
0: All right. First of all, Susan, I want to say, I, in fact, I'm going to start with a weird thing, which I haven't done yet. This is the third episode. You're uh, you're making history, by the way, because um, you are a groundbreaker in that you were the first person to do this podcast whose name is not Howard.
1: I, I've, I'm aware of that. And the two Howards are both extremely close friends of mine. So I feel like it's kind of all in the family, too.
0: I know. It's, it is a very... I was thinking about that. You actually have deep ties. In fact, both of it, when I told uh, Howard Beck that you were going to be guest number three, he was like, oh my God, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, uh, Yep. That's yep. Funny. My former roommate. Is that true?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We was my, uh, went to college with my now husband, then boyfriend. So we were roommates in Davis, California in the early nineties.
0: And, and how long were you on the beat with Howard Bryan for?
1: Oh gosh. Um, Two or three years, he had been on it the year before, and I started in ninety nine. I, w- I had been the backup the year before, so um, the entire time he was on the ace, I was at least around and mostly on the beat.
0: Could you? This is a, I, I. People always ask this stuff about about writers. I mean about ballplayers. But could you, um, with those two guys, could you see their talent early on? Yes,
1: although Howard Beck, I thought, was going to be a news writer, as I think did he. He had, uh, at the UC Davis student paper, he was sort of the news editor, news writer, and then he worked at the Davis Enterprise, the little local paper, and was strictly news. And I thought that's what he would do, but uh, I'm thrilled he's wound up being in in sports and um, you know has stayed there because he's he is phenomenally talented and Howard Bryant, you know he's always got an opinion on every on everything. So as a beat writer, he was very good, but I always I always thought that he should go into something where he could express his opinions more and do more sort of social kind of slanted stories which he's done, which is perfect for him.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was thinking you um you're an interesting you kind of fascinate me and you fascinated me for a long time. And it started actually, it's kind of interesting. When I was covering baseball at SI, um, you were early on the A's beat and I was just this guy. And number one, you were ridiculously nice to me. That uh,
1: doesn't sound like me. Are you sure that was me?
0: I think it was you. <laughs> well, and what I mean is like, I actually think like when you're a magazine guy and you come into these towns, so, you know, my my thing would be, all right, you know, go into Oakland, do a piece on Tim Hudson, and you have five days. Um, and to me, the local newspaper people have no reason to be nice or helpful to the magazine people. I'm basically coming into your turf. Back then, especially, like, the team was going to take really good care of me because, you know, it's a national publication. They want the publicity and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I always thought, if I were a newspaper writer, if I were in your shoes I would probably be a dick to the guy. I would probably be as unhelpful as possible, at least at that point in my career, um, because who the hell are you? You know, I'm busting my ass on this beat every day. I'm worried about whether John Jaw has a, has a strained toe, and this guy's coming in, and he gets to go to dinner with Tim Hudson and blah blah blah. And I kind of wonder, like, you actually have a reputation of being a very nice person. Um, you do, Factory, you do, and I and I wonder if that matters, like, if 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 kindness pays off in this business in a way, or if it doesn't?
1: Uh, Well, it's a mixed bag. You know, I would say I've not always been um, quite as nice to my competitors, my immediate competitors. But the national guys, I always feel like You know, first of all, our our season is so long as beat writers. We're writing every day, usually several stories a day. We've got spring training. We've probably written features about whoever the national guy has come in. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do a second big whatever feature that you guys are going to do. I always kind of like to see, especially the big national publications and the, the major writers who have big followings, I like to see them get things right, you know, talk to the right people and get, you know, the last thing, any beat writer, I think, or anybody that follows a team regularly wants to see is kind of a lame national story right so so plus you guys um, almost all the national writers are so fantastic and you guys come in and you're nice so uh yeah but uh don't talk to my competitors i, w- I would like to keep that nice reputation intact it's very uh fraudulent
0: do you well? do you actually keep so how do you do it like you've been covering this beat since 1999 you've had um Co- or, I mean your coworkers. You see them in the press box every day. You're on the road with them. Do you? What is the relationship? How do you view the relationship uh, with your with your direct competitors with the newspapers in the Bay Area? Do you can you be friends with them? Can-
1: yeah, you can. I mean, I think it's like anything. You, you're friends with the people that you like, and you're probably not as close to the people that you you don't mesh with as well. But you're still a, you're still competitors. So there are going to be days where. Um, you know, you probably have something and you'd like to keep it to yourself and maybe you're, um, not quite as communicative, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I would never misdirect anybody or do anything underhanded, but definitely there's, there's always the element of competition there for sure. And, uh, nobody likes to get beat on anything. So I think, uh, that adds, adds a little bit of a, of an edge to whatever friendship you do have on a beat.
0: Right. I, it's actually kind of funny. I was, um. I have, I have this – I'm literally staring at my screen at a book cover, and I'm not going to use the person's name. But I remember when I was covering baseball at SI, and you were covering the A's uh, for the Chronicle, and there was a writer, and he wrote a book about the A's. And he used to go out with the players. And I'm sure you know who I'm referring to. but He used, yep. to, he used to go out with the players. Um, and it used to infuriate me almost on behalf of you and your other colleagues who were real professionals and because i used to think like it's kind of like cheating like you don't go to the bars with players you don't go out to clubs with players you don't you know like you're, you're just not supposed to do that all uh, right and i wonder how you felt about that and how you feel about that sort of behavior among writers and if you see it a lot
1: i don't see that at all anymore. Um, yes, that just, you know, in the old days, you know, the whatever, the 50s, 60s, whatever, that, that was common. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody would wind up in the hotel bar, writers, players, coaches, um, guys would go out on the town, writers, players, you know, they often travel, you know, writers travel on the planes more often or on the, the train, whatever they were taking. And so there was more of that um, interaction. And I, you know, I'm not going to judge anybody else's actions. Obviously, as a woman, reporter, you're really not going to do that, right? Because the perception could be very poor if you're so spotted yeah. out on the town clubbing, clubbing with a bunch of players. So in that respect, it's a little bit unfair from a, a competition aspect if that is how one of your competitors is going about it. So I think that way is, is what I really wouldn't care for too much. Um, but everybody's got to an answer to their own um, personal sense of uh, ethics and, and morality when it comes to doing the job. I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's, um, you know, I I think the players then wind up thinking that the writer who does that is their friend and we're not supposed to be their friends. There are going to be times you have to criticize people. You're, you're going to have to write about their, their downs. Um, And, and it's harder when you become kind of wrapped up in, in a personal relationship with somebody.
0: Do you you feel like there's almost a, uh, you've seen the movie Almost Famous? Yes. Do you feel like there's a certain you know, in the same way uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character sort of warns a young writer, don't get caught up in the seductiveness of the scene. Do you think there is a potential for the young writer to feel like, oh, so, I don't name, it doesn't matter who you're talking about. This guy's my friend. And, you know, like, is it easy to get caught up in the seductiveness of fame, of baseball, of the life, you know, and to think that you're part of it when you're actually kind of on the outside looking in?
1: I suppose that's possible. I actually think it, this, is, at least, this is my own experience. I think it's it's almost the opposite. Like, you quickly realize that players, it, any, any athletes, anybody you're covering, if you're covering music, rock stars, anything, they're just normal people, and it quickly becomes very commonplace. Um, so I think it, it 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 actually lessens any sort of feeling of wow, this is the big leagues; these are stars. And they just become really very normal. It's your job. Um, I don't want to say it's, uh, you know, a uh, commonplace or boring or anything like that, but it, it you don't stay starstruck in my experience very long. Now, I covered the NBA mostly very early in my career. And I, I covered Shaq and that um, very good Orlando Magic team with Horace Grant and Penny Hardaway. And they were superstars, obviously. And, that, and they were just such normal guys, even Shaq. And I think maybe that, uh, quickly kind of uh, made me realize that this is, you know, they're just anybody that sort of the general public is putting on a pedestal. When you get to know them a little bit, they're just like everybody else, really.
0: Right. Actually, it's funny. I have a uh, in front of me. Uh, March 26, 1995, Orlando Sentinel, Susan Slusser byline. Traveling with Shaquille O'Neal is difficult, like touring with Madonna or Michael Jackson. A few people <laughs> in the country are as immediately recognizable or as widely popular. Um this is way, way out of order, but I kind of I, I try to make these discussions actually just kind of random and whatever. Um, what was covering Shaq like?
1: Oh, it was a blast. He, he was a treat. And um, that was before, you know, really before the Internet days. And I was the only traveling beat writer. So they were fantastic to me. You know, I had sort of just unbridled access um, and it was a great bunch of quotes in that whole the whole locker room. But Shaq was uh, he was funny because he was such a big star and such a big personality. But he would have one or two jokes and he would go around to every different town and tell the same joke. And then and the other media would come over to me and go, oh, he's so great. He's so funny. You're so lucky. And I go like, well, no, I've heard that same (laughs) joke now like 15 times. Um, But my favorite thing that Shaq would do is once they started the playoffs and I'm the one poor little sad sack. Uh, beat writer from Orlando and there'd be massive crowds of national people and the other, other teams, writers. And he'd always go like, Hey, 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 get my beat writer up here for here where she can listen. She's been here all year. So wow. I appreciated that. That's pretty unusual. So yeah, he was, he was terrific to cover.
0: Do you feel like guys were, um, were less affected back then? I mean, is, is it, is it, it's 20 years. We're basically talking 22 years early. Um, do you feel, I mean, it's kind of weird, like, uh, now, you know, you see, like, the NBA draft, just as an example, they have the red carpet as you walk up to the NBA draft, and everyone's wearing their suits, and who's your designer? It actually makes me want to kind of throw up a little bit, it, it kind of, the, the weird, almost Kardashianist nature of what it has all become. Um, do you feel like, back then, you're covering Shaq, and he's just some kid out of LSU, or, or was there still sort of the fame impact at that point?
1: It was just starting to happen, I think. You know, the NBA for so long, it was it was well known for its great PR. It was a great media league um, because it was trying to increase its popularity and its visibility. I think that was right when, you know, kind of Jordan's heyday and then Shaq comes along. It was just before Kobe. It would it had just sort of reached what it was looking to get, but was still very media friendly. We were still always courtside. Mm-hmm. Um, the players were still very accessible. And, I, um, you know, that there was some flash, certainly, uh, but nothing at all like what you see today. I mean, it was not red carpets. It was not, you know, um, superstars sitting courtside every game. Uh, it, it was still pretty normal.
0: Right. I, I, I just feel like sometimes... Um... I feel like saying the people, you know, they're just, they're just people like, they're just people. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like they do go to the bathroom, you know, like yep. just people because something the, has gone weird. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, growing up a massive sports fan, I, I would have been completely starstruck to, to run into any professional athlete as a kid. Um, but, but really you do quickly realize they've got the same problems as everybody else. And I think now with the internet, um, their problems have increased too. I think there's more flash and there's more attention and all of that, mm-hmm. but they get constant criticism. Um, they, you know, they really are a lot, especially the big stars. They're in situations where they don't know who to trust. Everybody's got an agenda. Uh, it's, and it's magnified with cell phones and, um, Twitter and Instagram and all of that. I, I think that, uh, sort of, it, it, the pressures are enormous for a superstar athlete.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't fully understand why someone don't, don't take this the wrong way, but why someone, I love when people say, don't take this the wrong way. That means something bad is (laughs) right. Uh No offense, but Um, to me, covering the NBA and sort of the, the number one, it's a much smaller roster. Uh, It's a much shorter season. I mean, it's still a long season, but it's a much shorter season. Uh, The games are, you know, action packed, not all of them, but a lot of them. I don't fully understand why someone would go from want to go willingly go from covering the NBA to covering a 162, not including spring training, not including the playoffs, major league baseball season. I leave that. That's an open ended question. Susan, why would someone want to do that? (laughs) I I see your point. Mm -hmm.
1: Baseball is my first love. And I actually, in terms of writing uh, baseball, I think is the best sport. It's, you've got more stories there are more guys there are more games and the thing I found frustrating with the NBA and I love the NBA but I would say I don't I don't really watch it religiously Mm anymore Uh, well the worst, of course I watch the worst but uh for instance when I was covering the magic there's there's loads of off days which okay from a personal standpoint that's great but you still got to write stories I must've written 12 stories about why can't Shaq shoot free throws that year because there's so few, there's so few guys, right? You wind up kind of recycling stuff. And when you're working for an East coast paper, you'll remember this. You have to do early stories too, if you go anywhere out of the East coast time zone. Mm -hmm. And so that burns up a bunch of different feature possibilities also. Poor Shaq, By the end of the year, was like, oh, would you please give it a rest with that I can't shoot free throws thing. And as it turned out, it was Nick Anderson who couldn't shoot free throws and sunk them in the in the postseason. So oh, yeah. I, was, I missed that entire story with all those. I but you know what? Baseball games every day, twenty five guys, loads. You can constantly write, and it's it's much more of a. The season is much much more of a story in and of itself because it's so long.
0: Right? Are you allowed to um. You you just mentioned Nick Anderson and the and the infamous miss free throws. <laughs> Are you allowed to feel bad for a guy like that? Happens.
1: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think you would want to write it with a complete utter sympathy, but I don't. I mean, who doesn't feel bad for a guy who, with the entire season on the line, just just starts clanking? balls i mean it's 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 just brutal hey you know it, we're supposed to be objective right as beat writers anybody that's not not a columnist is supposed to be objective but certainly there are guys you like and guys you you don't like as much and you just try to keep that out of your writing but we're, we're people too you know just like the players we're we're also people and if somebody's good to you you want to try to be good to them if possible
0: right you know i i, I do i think it's an interesting time period. For object uh, objectivity in journalism, and um, it seems like there's a line that is kind of um, it's not as firm as it used to be. And you know, just as an example, I get a uh, you know I get these things like I'm sure you do, like uh, you know, hey, can you give me some advice? How how can I enter the field? And blah blah blah. And, and there was a guy on Twitter recently who said, how do I? You know, what what advice would you give to me? And and is His Twitter photo is him in a Seattle Mariners hat. And my advice is lose the hat. But I feel like I see people in hats all the time or they put in their ID, diehard Giants fan or love the Rangers or, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. Is is objectivity what it was?
1: Uh, You know, that's a fight that I I, uh, try to carry forward all the time myself uh, and, and you see it all the time because I think there are so many bloggers and so many fan sites. And I love, I actually love the fan sites. Mm-hmm. The fan sites do a really good job, but it's completely different from what we do. And every once in a while, you know, somebody from a fan site will get uh, credentialed and come out, um, which is fine if they're not um, super duper fan, 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 because that's not, it's not appropriate in a, in a clubhouse or a locker room. Uh, but you also get uh, a lot of younger uh, people who come up reading that stuff, participating in those sites, who then decide they, they'd like to go into sports journalism. And that's the biggest problem I see is somebody that's, that's kind of getting a lot of their content from a fan site and comes out and is either wearing a uh, Jersey or um, is, you know, clearly acting like a, a big time fan. We've had it happen this year at the A's had to take a credential away from a from an intern who had um, who was being far too, um, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even quite high, just completely over the top.
0: He was an intern fan, at, right? a at a
1: newspaper at a at an outlet. I don't want to be yeah, too specific because right. it might be too too, <laughs> too obvious. But it was just too, it was just too much. It was too much fan kind of uh, hero worship and um, just coming on way too strong. And you you can't. This is a you know it's a it's a workplace. For everybody, um, the the players, the other journalists, the clubbies, you know, it's not it's not a fan interaction site. And I think that that kind of gets lost when when people are their content is maybe that they're consuming is so much fan oriented rather than uh, traditional media.
0: Have you ever turned to someone in the press box and said, please shut up or stop or you need to stop this or, you know, any variation of.
1: Well, yes, definitely <laughs> so that numerous times not for uh, not for fan type reasons, but um, just in general, <laughs> if somebody's not letting me do my job i've um, I, the A's had a talkative extremely talkative employee um, for a, a number of years who uh, I actually made move to another booth next to the this box. Um, I take cause... back
0: I take back all the kind words <laughs> see? I see yeah,
1: yeah, on a day to day basis, if I am not that
0: nice. Well, you take it – the thing is what I like is um, you take this seriously. Like you're – I mean, like right now, you're covering a bad baseball team. You're, you're 21 games – A's are 21 games out of first. Last year they won 67 – no, 69 games. The year before they won 68. Like you're in the midst of covering some bad baseball, but you take it. It's no different to you, correct me if I'm wrong, than if they were in first place or fighting for a pennant or whatever. Like you take this shit very seriously. No.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. It, there's always great stuff to write about. Um, and sometimes really good teams can be the worst teams to write about because there's not there's not much that changes. Right. If you've got a super duper team with an amazing lineup and a fantastic pitching staff, there aren't issues. There aren't going to make changes like, well, they're just playing great um, and bad teams. You know, the ace a's, as kind of famously are known for finding creative ways to get better, they're um, constantly reinventing themselves. And for a writer, that's that's fantastic. That's uh, one of the reasons Michael Lewis wound up with a bestseller in his hands. Is right. this is a really interesting team to cover, especially when they're t- kind of in a in a rebuild phase. Um, plus, you know, same thing that there, there's a revolving door on a team that's bad, and there's that means way more people to write about and lots of interesting backstories and, and all of that. So yeah, I, I don't mind it.
0: Right. You just brought up something that I really wanted to ask you. Okay. You brought up the Michael money, uh, Michael Lewis book, Moneyball. And, um, here's a long way of getting into this. The other day I was watching the movie, uh, straight out of Compton. Did you see straight out of Compton? I didn't know. Okay. It's a very good movie and uh, highly recommend. And there's a scene in the movie. It takes place in 1989 at a concert at Jill Lewis arena in Detroit, where NWA is performing. And, um, this fight breaks out and blah, blah, blah. And undercover police officers charge the stage. And I'm watching this movie. And one of the undercover cops is wearing a Rodney Hampton New York Giants jersey. And I pause the, the video and I go to whatever, Google. Because I'm like, wait a second. Rodney Hampton was not on the Giants in 1999. <laughs> he got there in 1990. And I was right. Could, the cop could not have been wearing a Rodney Hampton jersey. I ruin movies. By knowing too much about sports, right, and by having covered sports, like I ruin, uh, forty-two, the Jackie Robinson movie to me was an absolute uh, abomination. There were just a million him staring at home runs as they fly off, you yep. know, like standing at the plate, little things like that. I can't, and Moneyball, I hated Moneyball, and I people love Moneyball. Um, I hated that nobody mentioned Mulder Zito Hudson. I hated that nobody mentioned that they had Eric Chavez and Miguel Tejada, that no one mentioned Billy Cott. Like, Scott Hattieberg did not win the season for the Oakland A's that year. And Art Howe was not a bumbling idiot. And I hated Moneyball. And I'm fascinated to hear what you thought about Moneyball.
1: Well, the the first part of that, um, we're also – Issues with the book, right? I mean, Mulder, Hudson, Zito, and um, Eric Chavez get very little love in the book. I mean, virtually none. The one mention of Miguel Tejada, who was the American League MVP that year in Moneyball, is that there's a mention of him as Miguel swings at everything Tejada. Oh, my God. So that, that part is book related. The movie, the Art Howe characterization absolutely drove me nuts because um, he's sort of set up as this villain almost in opposition to Billy Bean. And there were all sorts of uh, factual issues with it. He was not. He was under contract for the next year in real life. Um, And also, as you know, just the kindest gentleman. I mean, absolutely a wonderful person. And that's just not, not the way he was portrayed. That drove me nuts. There were parts of the movie I really enjoy, though. Brad Pitt nailed Billy. He got Mm -hmm. all the mannerisms. I mean, the expressions, every everything. It was just a really, really good portrait of Billy. But yeah, a lot factually, you know, there were all sorts of. I've written a couple stories about the zillions of factual errors in the movie Moneyball. (laughs) Um, But you know what? It's not they weren't. You know, it was so Hollywood. That was the first time I really realized what a Hollywood movie did does with facts when they're doing telling a true tale
0: yeah the funny thing is is um Philip Seymour Hoffman I mean the late was one of the great actors of his generation and I just thought his portrayal of Art Howe was a mess like yeah I mean I just thought I can't I couldn't imagine being Art Howe and watching that movie and oh
1: it it hurt him so much did He's it? so wonderful yeah I mean he was really genuinely upset as of course of course he would. And, you know, Pauly Podesta was not on board with with Moneyball either. That's one of the reasons uh, the name was changed, Jonah Hill's character. The, mm-hmm. the name was changed from Pauly Podesta because he, he wasn't wild about that either. So uh, it, it, was really, it was really interesting. My favorite thing, and it wound up not being in the movie, was we walked into the press box one day and they were filming in the press box. And they had a bunch of all about uh, 45-year-old white guys wearing... Um, sports coats, and some of them even had fedoras.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Do you have a fedora? Susan, do you wear a fedora? Well,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, uh, often. I mean, I was surprised they didn't have, like, the little press cards sticking out of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's set in 2002. I mean, come on. That's right. pretty absolutely crazy. So, yeah, we were, we were amused by that. They wound up not using that, because I think as the regular media, you know, wandered in, and it's women and minorities, and we're all wearing, you know, jeans and t-shirts, they, they went, oh, Oh, OK. Right. But they had done so much research on other things. You know, what does the out of town scorebook look, the scoreboard look like in 2002? But not the press box. So,
0: so what was it like reading? You talked earlier about sort of um, out of town writers coming in and writing profiles on guys and, and you wanting to be right. What was it like for you uh, reading that book, considering as a team you covered?
1: um well i you know kicked myself a little bit for um not having investigated some of the sabermetric elements of what the a's were doing in greater detail before michael kind of uncovered it some of that was genius you Mm -hmm. know his his recognition of um you know we all knew the a's were trying to do more with less that was their whole deal but the idea that Billy Bean was trying so hard to find players who were the opposite of what he had been like as a player it was such a interesting psychological re- revelation to me. And really, I think very true. Uh, I loved that. I love that part. And, you know, Michael Lewis can tell a story. He can take the most complex, you know, bit of economics and, you know, global, uh, national and take a tiny little part of that and use it to tell a big story. That's what he did with Moneyball, and I, I really enjoyed that. That said, the baseball part drove me nuts. As I said, you know, it's that team was not Chad Bradford throwing, you know, sidearm or uh, you know the Ricardo Rincon deal. As as you mentioned, it was Mulder, Hudson, Zito, Eric Chavez, Miguel
0: Tejada. Right. That's funny. The Scott Hattieberg led Oakland A's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you get, are you fueled at all as a writer by, um, by, I get, I get, are you fueled at all by jealousy? And what, what I mean is, do you get, cause I get this, so I'm using that word for myself, I guess, probably more than you. Like when you see someone else break a story or you see Michael Lewis come out with Moneyball, like is there any sort of, Burn envy or jealousy or God, that should have been my story or that should have been my so-and-so. Do you, does that fuel you at all or not even a factor?
1: Uh, you know, as a beat writer, my job is so specific that, um, you know, really I judge myself against what the other people on the beat are doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, um, I always say it. my husband, Dan Brown, is. he's the fancy writer in our family. He's mm-hmm. a sports features writer and mm-hmm. he's really got this lovely, lyrical and funny kind of style. He could... He, he can really write a, a nice narrative. I'm a nuts and bolts beat writer, and I'm good on the news. I'm a good reporter. Um, and I feel like if I'm on top of the news on my beat and I'm telling A's fans and other baseball fans in the Bay Area what they need to know on a day-to-day basis, I'm doing my job. So uh, I try not to. You know, if somebody writes a kick, kick-ass story about something on my beat and it's something I've missed entirely – I'm going to be mad at myself rather than jealous, but I'm not going to be very happy about it. That's right. probably... I could probably safely say that.
0: Right. Um, I'm fascinated by a story you wrote in 2003, which I also have in front of me. Um, <laughs> muscle strain, sidelines, Hudson. Bar incident, Mike <laughs> Uh Tim Hudson, obviously great pitcher with the A's back in the day. Um, got a bar fight. Uh, you, you wrote a, a really, really well done sort of news story about it. Like a really... This is going to sound dumb, and, and I, I mean it exactly it's like a really professionally done. And what I mean is there's no gossip. There's no innuendo. You interviewed a security guard, a member of the bar staff, and you find out Tim Hudson gets in a skirmish with a Red Sox fan, throws some punches, and Tim Hudson ends up getting hurt. Um, and what I wonder, what I'm fascinated by is, so you see Tim Hudson every day. You see all these guys every day. Um, how does he respond you reporting on him getting in a fight
1: he was fine with it i mean uh he knew what had happened and i knew what had happened and uh he he was he was totally fine with it uh i think he understood uh, the reason that uh, i got told about you know he came out of that playoff game with with an injury Mm -hmm. and there were people who had been there at the bar uh who I think felt like the bar incident maybe had been responsible for that problem. And that's why I found out, which I think he, he, either that message had kind of gotten through or somebody had told him. So I don't think he ever had any issue with me. We're still very friendly. He's always been wonderful to me. So, um, yeah, I think that's, the, that's a thing that, uh, if he could go back and, and do it again, I'm sure he would have uh, tried to avoid that situation.
0: Have you ever had a? am uh, sure you have, but I, I guess I'll ask her an example. Uh, a ball player is just ridiculously pissed off at you.
1: I have, but it's usually, it's been guys that everybody sort of have, has issues with at times, you know, the guys who are moody or, um, you know, can kind of fly off the handle for no reason. I've never had a really awful, unless I'm just completely black, blocking it out. Um, I Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything uh, really major where somebody has, um, you know, I uh, had an, One guy last year who was mad, I had been told that uh, a player was probably going to get moved at some point near the end of the season, and he wasn't. And, um, you know, the front office changed his mind or whatever. But I had been told that it was was coming, and I wrote it. And then we – the Chronicle was not on the next road trip Mm -hmm. uh, because the A's were out of it. And uh, he went off on me in part because – uh, what I had said was ha- had, uh, was going to happen didn't. Um, so he, he was angry about that, but also because I wasn't there for him to say that, which is totally fine. I mean, that's one of the things about being a beat writer is that it's pretty sacrosanct that if you write something critical or um, you know something controversial about a player, you need to be there to ask answer the questions about it. Now, in this day and age with Twitter and texting and all of that, certainly if he had been upset, he could have gotten a hold of me pretty easily. But it's much better to be there the next day. And for that, I, that I did feel bad. And he was legitimately uh, right to be angry at me for not being there to answer the question. But, you know, hey, what? A, not my decision to pull off the road.
0: Right. See, this is one of the things I have to say I, I, I very much admire about you. Like um, when I was at SI and I wrote the, the, the stupid John Rocker story, you know, my my editor made it very clear. You need to go. At some point, he has to see you. You know, yeah. like he has to see you. Like that is a requirement. And I was brought up at the at the Tennessean with the same. I had editors who, when when uh, when someone was mad at you, they have to see you. Uh, You subscribe to that too, I presume.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And one of the things that drives beat writers nuts is when con- you know, con- beat writers are seldom going to write anything flat out mean or outrageous or controversial. You were word- not we're not in the opinion game. That's the columnist, but. Columnists for our outlets will write, take some shots at people, and then never come to the ballpark, never. And so that leaves the beat writers answering for for that columnist constantly. I've gotten calls from uh, angry team officials about things that my colleagues have written, which is you know like, oh, really? Right. So we appreciate it when the columnists show up, especially if they've written something. Uh, that's a, a little over the line in, in terms of maybe a personal shot. When my husband was covering the Giants, I can remember uh, one of his his newspaper's columnists had taken some shots at Brian Sabian, and <laughs> Sabian went over and started blasting Dan for what this columnist had written, and the columnist was actually standing about 10 feet away. Dan kept going like, he's right there. Why don't you just go tell him that yourself? And Brian Sabian was like, I don't know him. I know you. So. <laughs> I'm gonna yell at you instead.
0: Exactly. Oh, That's funny. Um, who's it? What's the best like? Uh, what's the, who's the best quote you've ever had? Who's like the who's your money all time money quote?
1: Oh, I've been so lucky. I've had I've had a few. So I'm gonna have to name a few. Um, Daryl Hamilton when he was with the the Rangers was
0: late La- Daryl Hamilton.
1: Yeah, who I just adored. He was he was the absolute go to player on the '96 Rangers playoff team that I covered by mm-hmm. far really stood out on that team. Uh, Shaq obviously was wonderful. That whole team was wonderful. Um, And with the A's, Eric Chavez, Dallas Braden, um, uh, there's been a zillion, but uh, Eric Chavez was one of the the very few A's that actually spent a long time with the team, 12 years, which is a lifetime for the Oakland A's. And he was consistently honest and quotable and, delightful so uh
0: he's right up there in dallas Braden
1: is he's got a screw or two loose but in a very good way so uh
0: he was always fantastic i i just want to say i love that you covered. you covered the 95 rangers correct
1: yep 95 96
0: yep all right so you had among others in this on this one roster Yvonne, Pudge rodriguez will clark pagli rulo mark mclemore otis nixon rusty Gr- you had like this who's who candy maldonado of mm-hmm. like 90s baseball all in this one, like Bob Tewksbury, Kenny Rogers. Um, and that was your first, that was your first baseball beat, correct?
1: I had backed up in Sacramento for five years when I was at the the B, but never full-time, but, um, yeah, as a, as a full-time, yeah, that was my, my first, yeah, it was a blast. Was Was it fun? Yeah, it was it was fun. I knew Clark a little bit from having um, backed up in the Bay Area, of course. Yeah. and he was a he was a hoot and a half. The best thing was you could tell that that team was actually that they had never gone to the playoffs as the as the Texas Rangers, and you could tell that they were gearing up toward something bigger. That that was the year where it sort of became clear that they might be a team that had something the following year, mm-hmm. and, and and it was fun and just a you know it was a good bunch. Johnny Oates is the manager. Johnny yeah. Oates was wonderful and his whole staff. So yeah, that was a, that was a delightful team, but Daryl Hamilton came the next year. And yeah. again, man, he really, he and he and Kevin Elster and a couple other pickups were, were really key for them. And, and also great quotes.
0: I just want to say Will Clark um, when I was a very young baseball writer and he was with the Rangers and he intimidated me like no other guy. He, um, he just suffered a broken foot and I was like a young writer. I was with the Rangers. I don't even know why, and a bunch of writers are gathered around Will Clark and he's talking about his broken foot. And I go, uh, I said, does it, uh, does it hurt? <laughs> and he literally does this dramatic look at my name tag and goes, you know, in his cackle, his Will Clark cackle, he goes, Jeff, I broke my fucking foot.
1: <laughs> like, uh, he's a hoot. He used to, uh. He loved the game with the, the media. Absolutely mm. loved it. But he was all bark, all bark. Right. And he almost every day when we would get kicked out of the clubhouse, he'd start yelling, "Parasites out! Parasites out!" <laughs> and cackle, cackle, cackle. And everybody would laugh. But uh yeah, he was he was a blast. You know, it was sort of in the last stage of his stages of his career. But you know, what a fun player to watch during his heyday too. Did Real you great. feel?
0: Do you feel like if? um like, like guys like that, I feel like, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's going to sound worse than I actually mean, like, I think they like to see how far they can get with a with a reporter. You know, if they can sort of intimidate a reporter to a certain degree, if a guy is going to cower away or not cower. I feel like I was a cower early on in my career, where a Will Clark would bite at me, bark at me, and I would sort of like put my head down and, and mope away. Do you, I don't know, like, it seems like you're not that person. Are you, are you, are you just, do you just take the shit and kind of stand there and and bark back like how would you handle stuff like that
1: uh i would probably just laugh i would say but yeah i think especially when you're a young writer you would probably, like any, anybody probably would cower a little bit mm. and i'm sure he he would have loved that that was just a game for him i don't that there was i don't think any malice in it i think it was just he thought it was funny to kind of mess with reporters right and uh yeah, he so, which is one of the reasons I think generally I would probably laugh, is I figured out pretty quickly that a lot of times for those guys, it's really just they're just bored,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, I agree. Um, let yeah. me see a final thing. You, uh, I saw a quote, uh, I don't know when it was from, but it, it, this is you. I, I see myself as a baseball lifer, I can see myself covering the A's until someone makes me stop. Um, I've always viewed beat writing, baseball beat writing, especially as a job for someone who's like can you know like 25 and doesn't mind being on the road you know and and because it's beaten a lot of people down you know it beats people down you hear about people talking about baseball beat writing as a job that pummels you um you're away from home a lot you're dealing with guys you're kind of you're seeing the same guys day after day after day and yet you seem to have this rare and sort of precious love for it um that i admire and i wonder like how has this job not beaten you down
1: well, it is It is tough. I mean, people that have done baseball beat writing and then covered other beats always say like, oh my gosh, you're crazy. What are you doing? My husband covered the Giants for three years and he covered football. And he said, oh my gosh, football is like club med. Every, everybody has that reaction when they go and cover something else after baseball. But I do love it. And, and I admire the guys that have done it for a really long time. You know, the Paul Hoynes and Cleveland and Hal McCoy and that, you know, the guys that have done it forever We at the Chronicle, we have a 97 year old science writer, David Perlman, award winning science writer who still goes in the office every day and is fantastic. He's often on our front page. I think we went back and found his first byline in the Chronicle it was something like 1941. Wow. So I think that's my goal. So I'm going to be like the David Perlman. <laughs> no <laughs> relation, Dave by Albee. the way, no yeah. relation, yes. yeah. <laughs> that, you know. Yeah. um of baseball beat writing i'm gonna uh, my goal is to be the little 97 year old lady you know covering eric chavez the fourth or something
0: wait is it though i'm being serious is that like do you want to be like the first pers- like do you hope you're covering the age 20 years from now 30 years from now like is that the sort of thing
1: yeah i would love it i mean first of all that would mean i'm in pretty decent health because you can't do the travel and the, the long you know it's often 12 hour days it's you can't do that in, if you're not in decent shape so that would be a plus but, but I just love it. I mean, there, there are a lot of worse jobs. And um, I think I, at this point, I think I would be really bored if at some point, you know, that like I, come mid-January, I'm kind of itching to get going. And I can't imagine what I would do if I didn't have the baseball thing to, to, to keep going on.
0: Are you at all, um, or obviously you are, but how do you uh, – I mean, print is – I mean, I have people literally say to me, "Sports Illustrated, does that still publish?" You know, um, oh, no. which breaks my heart. Like, breaks my heart. And I wonder, um, where do you see this all going? You know, where, where, do, where does this, where does this, where does this go?
1: I, you know, what I've always felt like there's going to continue to be a market for content, and I still believe that. But this latest thing, I have to say, gives me pause. Like all these websites going, like getting rid of their entire content um, portions and, and just going strictly to video and saying the kids only want video, they only want video that that's alarming. If, if that's the case, right. maybe I won't have a long, long, super long career as a baseball beat writer, but, um, I continue to believe that there, uh, there's are so many outlets and so many people writing and such talent, really great talent out there. Uh, I, I, I think that there's always going to be, uh, a strong, especially in sports, a strong need for, for good quality content.
0: Do you enjoy tweeting?
1: Tweeting uh, tweeting's kind of the bane of my existence, but I do like it as a, as a news resource. It's good to be able to get news out quickly. Um, it's bad. You remember the old days. If you were a good reporter, um, the old days it was much better because it was either in the paper the next day or it wasn't. And it was the best feeling in the world to be the person that had it in the paper and the worst to not and it just doesn't happen anymore if i have a scoop now i tweet it and 30 seconds later my competitors called the gm confirmed it and and essentially writes the same exact story right. so um you know a scoop is not what it used to be but uh and, and it does make it a 24 hour a day job at, at some point it's tough to to get off twitter do you and keep I, your I, cell phone?
0: Do you literally keep your cell phone yeah. by your bed? You know, are you always like on?
1: No, no, I don't. I don't. But I do spend um, my waking hours kind of checking Twitter way too often. Yeah, it's good. And, I, and I, I get off, I get off planes panicked, you know, what's happened is something major happened. Because, you know, anytime you get on a coast to coast flight, that's when all the moves are suddenly going to be made.
0: Let me ask you a final thing. How many uh, frequent flyer miles do you have?
1: Uh, uh I'm close to a million on United. Oh my god. And and I don't just fly United. So that's that's what's really crazy is I I'm always I'm a Best Fare First person and I'm, you know, lifetime platinum on and, and Marriott and all of that. So yeah, it's it adds up quickly for a baseball beat writer. I, Jane Lee has been a uh, A's beat writer for I think 6 years now and she's already lifetime platinum
0: that's <laughs> Marriott. So you probably never want to fly anywhere like once you're once you're done.
1: I like to travel. Um, but, but yeah, I do laugh when people go, where are you going this off season? And I go, Oh, you know, the most exotic place to me is hanging out in my house. It's great. Sitting On the couch for a week is fantastic.
0: Yeah. You get your own bed. Um, well, Susan, we can, we can follow you on Twitter. (laughs) See, this is something I never thought 20 years ago who would have said this, but we can follow you on Twitter at Susan Slessor. Um, I I mean sincere again when I says you you number one I, I you're one of the great beat writers of my of my time, um and you were always nice to me and it, maybe maybe, you're, maybe you're, you maybe uh, at least you say you, you weren't nice to everyone but you're always nice to me, <laughs> um and it was always like going to Oakland was always I always felt like you guys had just like it was always like a treat to go cover the A's, uh, it it really was and it wasn't just John Jaha and Terrence Long. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Um, well, I like to think so. It's always, it's, it's fun out there. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of like they're the number two. They try harder.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I, I greatly appreciate it.
1: Fantastic, Jeff. It was a pleasure to talk to you. As always, don't be a stranger.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll try not to be. Once again, I want to thank Susan Slesser, the San Francisco Chronicle, for joining me on uh, Two Riders Slinging Gang. My name is Jeff Perlman. The music you're listening to is from the great MC White Owl. The name of the song is The Dead Poets. You can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang every week on the Bumpers Network, or you can download it on iTunes. And if you ever have any writer suggestions, feel free, please, to hit me up on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman, or you can even email me at angold, A-N-N-G-O-L-D-22, at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me today, and please, please, please keep writing.